You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Chapter 18, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. This is in Corinth. And he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he'd taken a vow. And he'd come to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they'd asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep his com- uh, this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he'd landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Persia in order, strengthening all of the disciples. And so it's there in verses 18 through 23, we read the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem to be part of the feasts that are going on there. We read that he had shaven his head as part of the Nazarite vow, probably in Numbers chapter six. You can read about that. They would, they would leave their hair growing for a period of time, typically 30 days. Although with Samson, we saw it was much longer than that. They would abstain from things from the vine as well as from touching things that are unclean. And Paul did this just as a new consecration of himself to the Lord, perhaps in thanksgiving for his life being spared in Corinth, there at the Council of Galileo, as we studied last week, Uh, but perhaps also for the future ministry that God had for him. He just wanted to rededicate his life. And man, as I was studying this, I was like, man, maybe I should grow my hair out for 30 days and and then shave it off and burn it. That's what Paul would do, you know? I'm like, I just want to offer my life up as I was studying this week, a fresh consecration to the Lord. So you might notice it's a little tall today, but maybe it'll get shaggier. I'm just consecrating my life. You can too. Um, but it's really more of like an Old Testament thing. And, uh, you know, I was just so encouraged by Pastor Bob Caldwell at the Calvary Chapel in Boise uh, this last year, as he just said, every year on the anniversary that he's really started the Calvary Chapel in Boise, he goes up in the mountain and he fasts and he resigns for being the pastor at Boise. And he waits there for a day from the Lord to give him the go-ahead, to go another year. Every year, he just says, Lord, it's your church, it's your work. Do you want me here or do you want me somewhere else? I I was blessed by that. I want to have that kind of a heart as it is God's church here in Prineville. Another neat thing within that section is when the Ephesians said, you know, stay with us. He said, man, I got to go to this feast, but I'll be back. God willing. And man, that is such an important thing for us as we are making our plans. As James tells us, you know, don't let any one of us say, hey, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to buy and sell and make a profit. And the Lord says, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what tomorrow holds. It's better to say, hey, Lord willing, we'll do this or that. Whatever God has in plan. His ways are definitely not our ways. But we see the end of the second missionary journey, and you can just kind of follow him coming back to Jerusalem on the map. And then he begins the third missionary journey, which actually follows a similar course. Uh, We'll have an updated map next week. But instead of wrapping up around Asia, he cuts straight across there uh, to Ephesus on the coastline again. And we'll see him back 
in Ephesus again at the beginning of chapter 19. In verse 24 of 18, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurate. And so as you look at this character, uh, Apollos, he's a remarkable man indeed. You could really do a character study on this guy as he's an Alexandrian or an Egyptian Jew. Alexandria was one of the greatest cultural and educational centers in the ancient world. It had surpassed Athens tremendously as this place where, where men would go to just be intellectuals. They would go to learn. It boasted one of the greatest libraries um, that the ancient world had ever known, having some 700,000 copies. And this man, Apollos, was from that area. And we see the fruits of that in his life, that he was an eloquent man. Most Alexandrians were well-educated. He was in that eloquent, skilled in speech, a gifted orator, an effective communicator. Not only did he have a great message, but he had great talent to speak that message. He knew how to capture the attention of the audience with words. He was good at it. We also see he was mighty in the scriptures. And man, as you read that, doesn't your heart just stir to be mighty in the scripture, to not just rely on talents, to not rely on talents at all, but to rely upon the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God that is so much more powerful than any, than any word I could conjure up on my own. He's an example to follow. We see here that he was well instructed in the way of the Lord. And perhaps that, perhaps that means he was a Christian and that the Lord that he was well instructed in was Jesus. Um, but really the Old Testament uh, when it speaks of the way of the Lord, it just describes well-educated and well-instructed in spiritual and moral standards that God required his people to obey. And that was probably more of the case with Apollos. He knew his Old Testament well, and he was able to instruct God's moral standards for people to obey. We see fervency in spirit. That means that he was on fire. He was on fire about the Old Testament scripture. That word fervency speaks of, uh, literally means for solids to come to a boil or for even liquids to boil, solids to be made aglow. And again, man, if, if this Apollos, this man who was well instructed in the way of the Lord and yet was still lacking in something was on fire, then I want to be on fire like Apollos as well. He taught accurately the way of the Lord. But we see one of the problems here was that he knew only the baptism of John. Uh, the baptism of John was a water baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a wonderful baptism. But we know that John's message was that he was preparing the way of the Messiah. John the Baptist was actually the last Old Testament prophet. And he was there preparing the way of the Messiah, as the, gospel, or as the prophet Isaiah said. And as Oswald Sanders says, that John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way and to get out of the way. 
That's exactly what he did when Jesus came on the scene. He didn't compete with Jesus as Jesus' uh, ministry began uh, there at the Jordan River. We see that his understanding of the gospel was limited. He only knew the baptism of John, a message of repentance by John the Baptist, a great message, but incomplete now that so much more had occurred with Jesus living his life on the earth, laying his life down on the cross, spilling his blood for the remission of our sins, being laid in the grave, but rising from the dead three days later and ascending into heaven in power and in glory and in victory, sitting down at the right hand of the Father and ever living to make intercession for you and for me, acting as our high priest, praying for us on a regular basis. See, Apollos was missing out on a lot. He had a lot. Great message, repentances, turn from your wicked ways and look ahead toward the Messiah. But now the Messiah had come and there was so much to learn. Now, if Paulus was a disciple of John the Baptist, he probably would have heard the whole John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps Apollos knew Jesus was the Messiah. And there was something about his You know, he's the lamb, he's the lamb of God, but nobody really understood that he was actually going to die on the cross. And so he just had this incomplete understanding. We see that he was a bold man. He spoke with courage in the synagogue. And then we see Aquila and Priscilla in verse 26. They heard him and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God miraculous. And I love this. Because you've got this man from Alexandria, this well-educated guy, an eloquent man, bold, and and all those things. And then you have these two tent makers, husband and wife team from Rome, who who took him aside, probably into their home, to explain to him how much more there was now that Jesus had lived, died, resurrected, and ascended, and sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to be witnesses. There was so much more that he lacked understanding on. Now, what I love about them is they didn't go after church, after the synagogue, down to the hometown buffet or wherever it was to eat at the time and just eat a big meal of roast the pastor. You know, let's just, you know, eat roast pastor all for lunch, you know. But instead they they said, hey, let's just get the guy. And we're not being critical. We're being loving. We're just, you know, hey, let's let's talk. We want to share with you uh, where we feel your understanding is limited, where we see your understanding is limited. And you got to love that about them, that that the Lord could use tent makers. Guys, I'm probably one of those. I'm probably more on the tent maker end of things than the super educated Apollos type of a guy. And I'm so thankful for 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, that the Lord uses the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world. I'm sure there are some others in this room that are encouraged by that as well, that God can use you as a tent maker, as a welder, you know, as a farmer, as a, as a, you know, as a pharmaceutical rep, you know, as a bookkeeper, whatever it might be, as a guy that drives an excavator all, around all day, you know, uh, he can use you to instruct and come a lot alongside people and educate people in the, in more accurately the word of God. In verse 27, when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he'd arrived, he greatly helped those who believed. He was a servant. He was a guy that was out there to help and to strengthen those that believe through grace. 
For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He's a powerful witness here. Apparently he received the education from these tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, and they were able to write this letter of commendation to send him on to uh, Corinth uh, there uh, where Paul had recently left. In verse 19, and what happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. Let's pause there for a second. So Paul had already been in Ephesus once, but now he comes back through to have a more full, lengthy period there ministering to the church in Ephesus. A couple things on Ephesus, a a giant city, the greatest city in, in Asia Minor, had a harbor that invited world trade. It was an international city, really cosmopolitan. Uh, it was a significant city. It's been called the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. A uh, Roman writer called it the light of Asia. But it was also an immoral city, very similar to Corinth. One writer from the day said no one could visit Ephesus that was a believer and not weep because of its depravity and immorality. It had a mammoth temple that was one of the greatest uh, wonders of the ancient world. This massive temple to the love goddess Diana, where there was this giant, squatting, black, multi-breasted goddess uh, to love, where again, thousands and thousands of temple prostitutes would offer their bodies up uh, continually to this false god. That's the kind of city that the gospel is in. That's the kind of city where the gospel is transforming and light is spreading and darkness, as we're going to see by the end of the chapter, darkness is going to have to hide. And Lord, do that in Frienville because there's similar goddesses and there's similar gods here that we want the light to just chase out. But again, Apollos is, is mentioned here in verse one again, and we see that he has gone north to Corinth where Paul had just ministered, and Paul is coming to Ephesus, where Apollos had just been ministering. And we see that for one reason or another, and you can flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. For one reason or another, whether it's because of Apollos' eloquence and just his boldness, and he was a powerful, awesome guy. And then you've got Paul, and he's an apostle, and, and you know, Jesus has appeared to him and spoken to him and been using him as one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. And for some reason, people see these two awesome men of God and they begin to polarize themselves to one side or to another, you know, to Paul and saying, I'm of, a, I'm of Paul. Or another group would say, I'm of Apollos. And there would be this sectarianism developing both in, for, uh, mainly there in Corinth is where you see it in the letter to the Corinthians. And uh, Paul says that it is an evidence of carnality. It is an evidence of sin. Whenever we begin to say, I am of somebody, that's carnality, that's sin. We should all be saying, I am of Jesus Christ. I'm of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those in Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then if you jumped over a couple chapters, the first Corinthians chapter three, verse three, he addresses this sectarianism again. He says, you are still carnal for where there's envy, strife and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says I'm of Paul and another I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. And then I love this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So man, we always want to be warned against polarizing ourselves towards people. And we always want to be polar, you know, just moving ahead together towards Jesus. And so we see that Paul comes into where Apollos had been. Opportunity for sectarianism to begin. Apollos goes up to Corinth. And we see that happened up there. And Paul writes that correction to them. But we see here that when Paul passed through the upper regions in chapter 1 of verse 19, he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. And so you might just mark in your Bibles or if you're taking notes, I hope you are, that we see some disciples here. Disciple speaks of a pupil or a learner, a student. And some have suggested that these Ephesian disciples were not actually Christians yet. Um, and you know, it's actually a, a topic of much debate. Never knew it was so much debate until I studied in depth this week. And I have to say that there are amazing men who I would love to sit under and be tutored by. Uh, men like Alistair Begg and John Stott uh, who sit on the side that these men were not Christians yet. Uh, and then there's other men uh, who, you know, just amazing scholars and doctorates who would say, I, I believe they were Christians and so you guys are sensible people with Bibles in your hands. And I encourage you uh, to search the scriptures like the Bereans. I'll share just a little bit where I land, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> Nothing at all, really. Uh, you look in your Bibles and decide. But some would suggest that these Ephesian disciples weren't Christians yet. One of the problems is that they're actually called disciples here. They're actually called disciples. Now the word disciple in the book of Acts is used 23 times by Luke. And every time it's used of Christians. It's never used in the book of Acts except to refer to followers of Jesus or believers. It's my opinion here, Luke is talking about Christians. Christians who are in a very infantile state. F.F. Bruce, doctorate in theology from Cambridge University, makes the point when the men are called disciples... Without further qualification, that seems to mean that they were disciples of Jesus. Had Luke meant to indicate that they were disciples of John the Baptist, he would have said so explicitly. 
And as you look in verse 2, it says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The question that was posed to these disciples, evidently something was missing in them, whether they were living a bit carnally, whether they were lacking power, whether they just looked like dry sponges on the side of this sink or a piece of fruit that had fallen off the vine and was a little bit mushy and wrinkly, you know, who knows what the case was. We're not really sure, but whatever it was, Paul was prompted to ask them, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit uh, when you believed? The King James Version says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Or Young's literal translation says, the Holy Spirit did ye receive having believed? And so one awesome guy would say those are unmerited, unwarranted translations. Okay, well, you know, you guys search and you guys look it for it yourself. I'm just saying, for me, best sense as I've been studying, it appears to me they are believers. But I think the question is well asked, and I think it's asked to us today. And so I want you to write in your Bible, right here, or in your notes, have you received the Holy Spirit since you've become a believer? Maybe if you hold to the other end of things, that's okay. Maybe just write in your Bible, Is there evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life today? Or would there be a reason that Paul would look at me and ask the same question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit since you've believed? Are you a believer? (laughs) You know, is there evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. This speaking here of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now don't get uncomfortable with that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a phrase that Jesus himself used. It's a phrase that John the Baptist himself used. In fact, in every gospel, John the Baptist foreshadows and foretells the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll look in that in a second. You can look back at Acts 1.5 and and we'll reference it in a second. Just see what Jesus said. But before we do, we want to look at the three foundational Greek words in the New Testament that are used to describe the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life or in a person's life. One of them is is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a non-Christian's life as well. So I want you to take notes here. I want you to write these things down. I'm not just giving you these Greek words so that you can be all smart and knowledgeable and have a bunch of Greek words under your belt. There's a point to it. And so I want you to follow along with me. The word para is the first Greek word I want you to know. P-A-R-A. You know Espanol, you already know what it means. Uh, It means to be with or to come alongside. And so the first ministry of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life is that the Holy Spirit is with a person. Flip over to John chapter 14, verse 16, where he says, Jesus says, and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Okay, so you might underline that word with and just write the word para there. I will give you another helper. He will abide with you forever. And keep your finger there because we're going to come back in a couple minutes to John 14. 
Flip over one chapter to John 15, verse 26. It says, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, uh, he will testify of me. So this Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, important to know. I've done a whole study on it in the past. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay, It's not a force like electricity or gravity. But he is a person with feelings, emotions, jobs, service. Uh, you know, uh, he, he has feelings. He works actions. Okay. And he will testify of Jesus when he's with you. Okay. He is, will testify with Jesus when he's with you. In John chapter 16, verse 18. Just kind of chapter, chapter through John here says when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So even for a non-believer, the Holy Spirit is, is with them. He is alongside of them and he is testifying of Jesus to them. If you're a non-Christian today, the Holy Spirit is next to you today. And he is convicting your heart about Jesus Christ and who Jesus is, that he is God and not a man or a prophet, that he died on the cross for your sins, to forgive you of your sins. And he took your sins upon him, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and he is alive today, verifying every word he's ever said to be true. And he's ascended to the right hand of the father and he prays for you Every second of every day, he intercedes on your behalf. And the Holy Spirit, even today, right now, is with you, speaking to you. And as John 16, 18 says, he is convicting you of your sin. First goes on to say, sin because you do not know him or you do not believe in him. The heart of sin is unbelief. And today, the Holy Spirit is alongside of you, non-believer, and he's convicting you of your unbelief in Jesus Christ. He's convicting the world of righteousness, that Jesus is righteous. He goes on to say, of righteousness because I, have ascend, I will ascend to my Father. One day we will stand before Jesus and will we be clothed in righteousness or will we be clothed in our self-righteousness, which before the throne of God is as filthy menstrual rags. The Holy Spirit convict you today that you are not righteous before God in and of yourself. You're a murderer in your heart. You're an idolater. You're an adulterer in your heart. You're covetous. You're bitter, you're angry, you're unforgiving, you're disrespectful to your parents. The list goes on and on and on. And you are a sinner who will stand before Jesus someday. And if you are not clothed in his righteousness, you will be sent to hell. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. And of judgment, finally, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Because one day we will be judged and if you're a Christian, you'll be judged in a good way as an Olympian is judged, given rewards. If you're a non-believer, you'll be judged to the point of condemnation. And the word judgment there in the Greek is crisis. It will be a crisis for you. 
Holy Spirit convicts us and tells us the truth and he does it lovingly and he does it firmly and he's in this room today and he's doing it to some of you. Some of you even look like Christians and nobody knows but you and Jesus that you are not a Christian. The Holy Spirit is alongside you and he is touching your heart right now and he's saying, are you really my child? Are you really my sheep? Are you really fruit off of my vine? Are you really? Holy Spirit alongside with an individual. But then the point comes when the Holy Spirit convicts a person, shows them their need for a savior, and that person responds to Jesus and they're born again, a work of the Holy Spirit, not done by men, but by God, as we are transformed, regenerated, made a new creation in Christ. And thus is the second Greek word for the Holy Spirit ministry in, a, in an individual's life. And that is the Greek word en or in that moment where you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in you. He dwells in you. John chapter 14, verse 17. I told you to keep your finger there a few minutes ago. It says the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you para and will be in you and this happens when you're born again, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation and you place your rest and your trust and your belief and your faith in the victorious life of Jesus Christ, as well as the victorious death of Jesus Christ, as well as the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as the victorious ascension of Jesus Christ. And when you place your trust in that, he comes in you becomes personally involved with you first corinthians chapter 3 verse 16 says do you not know that you are the temple of god and that the spirit of god dwells in you three chapters later first corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 don't you know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who's in you in whom you have from God, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Second work of the Holy Spirit, second ministry of the Holy Spirit, is that he will come in a believer. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And just an illustration that I always use with my high school students and had a guy over for dinner the other night. I happened to have a pitcher of water on the table and a glass of water. I said, this is perfect. I was trying to explain to him the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. I said, okay, so the pitcher of water is alongside the glass, para the glass, with the glass, convicting the glass of sin and righteousness and judgment. And when that glass responds to the pitcher and, you know, allows the Holy Spirit to come in and change and make that glass different, then that pitcher fills up and comes in to the glass and pours water in and seals that glass. Just imagine the glass being filled with water and the meniscus at the top sealing the glass. You can even wiggle the glass a little bit and water will kind of go up but not spill over. There's a sealing there in the glass just as the Holy Spirit seals the Christian for as a guarantee, Ephesians tells us, a guarantee of our salvation. 
And I ask you today, is the Holy Spirit in you? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Has he sealed you for salvation as a guarantee of your salvation? Or are you still empty? Be honest. And right now I know the Holy Spirit is answering that question for you in your heart. Then the third, the third work, and it's the Greek word epi, E-P-I, or upon in the English language. The Holy Spirit will come upon a believer. As you look in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 5, you can just flip back there. says, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. I hear pages flip, and that is awesome. I'm going to read that verse again since you're there. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, there's that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Who's he talking to here? Who is Jesus talking to here? Are they believers? Who's he talking to? Believers, the apostles, the disciples. Those who have already received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the E-N. In fact, a few weeks earlier in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Have a hard time believing that Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And it just bounced off of them into never, never land. And he said, okay, okay, okay. A couple more weeks later, you know. I personally believe they received the Holy Spirit, had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit there. And then in Acts 1 there, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The epi, the upon, there in verse 8 of chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon. And if you go back to my childish illustration of the pitcher and the glass and the glass at this point has been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's as if you were to now take a hose or something, a fire hose or a garden hose, place it in the glass and just crank it on full blast. And there is an upon, there's an overflowing is the better translation of the world word, an overflowing or an outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, upon a believer's life. And the purpose of that is for boldness. And so with all that being said, you know, Paul looks at these guys and he just notices there's something wrong. Okay, whether they're not believers yet or, or they are believers, but they're just lacking power, you know, and, and they're, they're in the similar state as Apollos, uh, you know, and a little bit mis- misinformation, lacking in understanding. They tell him in answer to his question, they said, we've not so much, in, at the end of verse 2 there, chapter 19, verse 2, remember the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed or since you believed? And they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Not only have we not received the Holy Spirit or been baptized with the Holy Spirit or whatever, 
Uh, we don't even know who this guy is. You know, what are you talking about? Who is the Holy Spirit? Good question. Question food for thought. Do you have to know who the Holy Spirit is before you're saved? For your Christian? Does everybody have a comprehension of the Trinity uh, when they become a Christian and become disciples? Or is that something that's process of a believer's life? Uh, you guys be Bereans, search the scripture on that one. But these guys had never even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. They had no knowledge about the Holy Spirit. Sadly, this is the case for many within the church today. Complete ignorance of the Holy Spirit, of the person of the Holy Spirit, of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So many pastors avoid the subject because it's too controversial. But we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So often the ignorance of the gifts is because of an ignorance of who the Holy Spirit is as a person, the third person of the Godhead. That Jesus ascended so that he could come and be with us everywhere we're at. We haven't even heard of this guy. Similar situation to maybe some of us in the room today. And so Paul says, uh, says to them, into what then were you baptized? Have you been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. The, you know, what, haven't you? And, and what did they say? They said, uh, we... Um, and they said, into John's baptism. So a similar issue as with Apollos, just you know, not understanding fully the finished work of Jesus and, and what Jesus has provided for us through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sending of the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized into John's baptism. John's baptism, Paul says there in verse 5, or verse uh, Verse 4, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he says to them, yeah, John was a forerunner to the Messiah. And that was great that you guys had that baptism. And maybe they had heard about, you know, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Maybe they hadn't, uh, you know. And, but man, when Paul preached it, they said, okay, man, we want this baptism. We want to be baptized. And, and the baptism that was here was another water baptism, but it wasn't in the name of John the Baptist. It was in the name of Jesus. As we see in verse 5, as they heard this, they were baptized in the name or the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 6, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. And so John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. All four Gospels record uh, John the Baptist foretelling the baptism of the Holy Spirit, affirming that his wasn't the only baptism. You look in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And you can go ahead and flip there. I know a lot of flipping today. Just uh, careful for paper cuts and all of that. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I indeed baptize you, or excuse me, uh, I jumped down to verse 11 there. So John would say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Then in verse 11, Matthew three eleven, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says, I've got a water baptism. A a, a water baptism that's going to continue. It's going to have more about it once Jesus comes. But there's a water baptism. Jesus is going to come. And he's going to baptize with the person of the Holy Spirit. And then if you flip over to John chapter 1 verse 29. John 1 29. Just another account. We're not going to look at all John the Baptist's accounts. Just two of them here. John 1 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. So imagine, you know, it's his cousin And his ministry is to prepare the way of the Messiah to say, hey, repent of your sins. The Messiah is coming. And then that day when good old cuz comes down the trail to the Jordan River, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him. But that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, Jesus says a very similar thing that John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then a little bit later there, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, when the epi happens in your life, when the Holy Spirit just gushes out of you, torrents of living water. And these men, they were baptized with water here with Paul. A beautiful, beautiful thing that I would never downplay. Water baptism in the name of Jesus. Wonderful thing. If you have not been baptized, man, in obedience to what Jesus says, be baptized. I would say if you're lacking power in your life, Number one, have you been baptized with water? Jesus says such is necessary to fulfill righteousness, to have a a life that is living in righteousness for the Lord. Then obey the Lord and make a public confession of your death on the cross with Jesus as you stand in the grave of the waters of baptism and as you are submersed and buried in the grave of the waters of baptism just as Jesus was buried in the tomb, but just as Jesus rose from the dead, you too come out of the water in victory and walk in newness of life. And you show the world, I am dead. The old Rory, the old whatever your name, insert your name, the old one is dead, but the new one is alive in Christ Jesus. If you have never been baptized, you need to be baptized. Come and talk to me. Man, I have been having a vision of somehow getting a bathtub in that closet that somehow swivels out. Kevin, start working, drop plans. Kind of swivels out, has a drain, hot water, some flood prevention, you know, but man, I want to baptize more. I want to baptize more. You know, it is important, not necessary for salvation, but necessary in a believer's life to be obedient to Jesus. If you haven't been baptized with water, I encourage you be baptized 
with water in repentance in Jesus' name. Be immersed and saturated and plunged. But here we also see in verse 6, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came epi them. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Not long before that, they were baptized with water and immersed and plunged in water. And just probably seconds later, you know, we don't really know the exact time frame. Might have been while they were still in the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit plunges them and saturates them for the purpose of power and boldness and courage to be a witness in this world. And so now I ask you to examine your life. Just examine your life. Whether you are, you know, you know man, I don't know, it's baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's a little scary to me, you know, or, or the, uh, you know, were these guys Christians or were they not? I don't know. Just examine your life. Is there power? That word in the Greek is dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite or dynamic. Is your Christian life dynamite for Jesus? Is it dynamic for Jesus? Just be honest. If not, man, today is a day where you can just ask, Lord, in the same way that you came upon these disciples in Ephesus, come upon me, give me power. In the same way that you came upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2, or the apostles or the disciples in Samaria in chapter 8, or the new disciples in uh, Caesarea in chapter 10. What, Lord, Come upon me and give me power. Come upon me and give me power. You know, I personally believe the Holy Spirit's not in a box as far as when he can come upon or epi a believer. We see in the scripture, it could be at the moment of salvation. Acts chapter 10, the moment of salvation. Peter wasn't even done preaching the gospel. And these, these new, brand new believers were baptized with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues. You know, chapter 8, you know, the Sumerian revival. These guys have been believers and had been baptized in water. And pretty soon Philip comes and he's able to pray for them for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was after water baptism. You know, whatever the case, during water baptism. I believe the Lord baptizes with the Spirit also during water baptism. In fact, when I baptize people, I also pray, hey, great opportunity to also pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus was being baptized and the dove ascended upon him, a picture of the Spirit upon Jesus, anointing Jesus. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching the gospel. He says, you know, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism, the epi of the Holy Spirit for boldness. Definitely can happen during baptism. Right now, I just ask, examine your life. Maybe some of you, you know, man, there was that day, I know I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was the day I was saved, which happened to be the day I was baptized. You know, you can say, yes, I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Some of you, you can say, I remember the day when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And maybe since then, your life has become a bit dry. And you look at Acts chapter 4, the same guys from Acts chapter 2, they'd just been persecuted and just had an amazing victory. 
And they began to pray a prayer for boldness. And it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. Again, they were baptized. It's just this continual overflowing filling. And today, maybe you would just ask, Lord, I just, I feel dry. I want boldness. I'm just lacking a lack of power, a lack of dynamite. Pour out your spirit upon me afresh today. We see they spoke in tongues. You know, I believe the Lord is not in a box with the gifts that he can give when he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's tongues. You see that in the scripture. Sometimes it's not. You see that in Acts chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he wills and that we are to earnestly desire the best gift. And you know what? I believe the best gift is the gift that is needed at that moment. (laughs) Earnestly desire the best gifts. He distributes them as he wills. Sometimes the laying on of hands. Sometimes not the laying on of hands. Sometimes that, you know, the Lord is not in a box, but he is a God of order. He is a God of order and he's not the author of confusion. And so I would ask you, tough issue, full of debate. I've wrestled through it the last couple days. I really have. And I'm confident that as you guys study the scripture, that you'll just be faithful to the word. Tough issue. On one hand, these guys called disciples appear to be part of the company of Christians at Ephesus. On the other hand, they, so, they know so little about the life of Jesus. And they're baptized with water again, this time in the name of Jesus. Were they were Christians? Were they not? It's tough to say. But certainly, Paul perceived by the lack of something in their life that the Holy Spirit was what was lacking. The Holy Spirit whether that was the indwelling or the epi, man, something was lacking. How about you? How about you? Be honest. Just asking you to be honest. Is something lacking? If Paul were here today and you were hanging out after church at the, you know, tasty treat, (laughs) you know, we say, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Some of you, I didn't even know about the Holy Spirit till today. <laughs> I didn't know who he was, what that's all about. Or maybe he would just say, hey, what's going on? There's a dryness. There's an impotency in your life. There's a lack of power. What's going on? You might just say to Paul, Paul, I, I need a fresh filling today, man. I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I need power to be a witness. I need power for victory. I need power, and I, 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 man, I desire gifts. You know, these Ephesian disciples sensed their need to get right with God, and they knew the answer was God's Messiah. That's what John the Baptist preached, but they, they needed to go further than that. They went farther, trusting everything in Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Where are you at? I like what Spurgeon said. Have ye received the Spirit since you believed? Beloved, are you now receiving the Spirit? Are you living under His divine influence? Are you filled with His power? Put the question personally. I'm afraid some professors will have to admit that they hardly know whether there be any Holy Ghost. And others will have to confess that though they've enjoyed a little of His saving work, they do not know much of His ennobling and sanctifying 
influence. Guys, God always wants us to go deeper. Read Ezekiel chapter 47, this river coming out of the temple. And Ezekiel is told to go into the river and he goes into his ankles. And to him, that was far enough. And the angel says, no, go deeper. And he goes to his thighs and, oh no, you know, this is far enough. And then he ends up being told, go deeper. This is uncomfortable. Go deeper. He goes deeper up over his head. That's what the Lord wants for us today. Not, right, stay where I'm comfortable, just above the ankles. Go deeper. Go deeper in in the Holy Spirit's work in your life. He wants us to... Drink deeply where we may have once sipped. And where we've once drunk deeply, he wants us to wade. And where we've once waded, he wants us to go fully in and plunge in. And maybe you're here today and you just don't really know. Maybe I'm walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And maybe I'm not. And I would say you will know if you are. Spurgeon also said, said, give a man an electric shock, and I warrant you, he will know it. And if he has the Holy Ghost, he will know it all the more. Not comparing the Holy Spirit to electricity, just saying, you'll know it. You'll know when the Holy Spirit is moving in power in your life. It's going beyond your strength. You might be an Apollos and be eloquent. And then the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and man, you are just... Off the hizzle. Examine yourself. Just closing, this quote from Spurgeon just ministered to me. As, as we think of these disciples, how they'd never even heard of the Holy Spirit. He says, I believe, brethren, that whenever the church of God declines, one of the most effectual ways of reviving her is to preach much truth concerning the Holy Spirit. After all, he's the very breath of the church. Where the Spirit of God is, is power. If the Spirit be withdrawn, then the vitality of the godliness begins to decline, and we are backbiting. Let us turn to the Spirit of God, crying, Quicken thou me in thy way. If we sorrowfully perceive that any church is growing lukewarm, be it our prayer that the Holy Spirit may work graciously for its revival. Let us turn to the Lord. Let us seek again to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and into fire. And we shall yet again behold the wonderful works of the Lord. He sets before us an open door, and if we enter not, we ourselves are to be blamed. I'll tell you, last night, going to bed, studying all this, I just had a closing prayer before I think I finally drifted off, was, Lord, I just need a fresh filling. I need a fresh filling. Pour out your spirit, just torrents of living water coming out of me, just bubble out of me. There's in epi par, I want it all, Lord. Whatever it is, I want it. Whatever it is, I need it. And today we're going to give you the opportunity. Stuart, come on up, buddy, and, and the team. I want you to just be honest before yourself and the Lord. We just move to an attitude of prayer. What ministry is the Holy Spirit in your life right now? Where's he at? 
Is he alongside you, convicting you today? A person that almost tasted of the Holy Spirit will almost get to heaven. You might be like these guys, these disciples. You're in the church. You have some appearance of being a Christian. Only the Lord knows and only you know. Is the Holy Spirit in you? Have you been born again? Have you rested upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Has the Holy Spirit come in you? Has he sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise? Guaranteeing your salvation. If not, just right now where you're at, I just ask you to just lift up your hand where you're at. And just say, I haven't been filled with the Spirit. I haven't had the Holy Spirit in me, but today I want him in me. I want to respond to Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I want to place my rest in Christ. I want to put my hope in what he's done at the cross. I want to be forgiven of my sin. And I want the in. Lord sees you. Awesome, beautiful. Lord sees you too. So as you lift up your hand, just know, hey, he sees me. This is you responding to the source of life today. Anybody else, just lift your hand. Maybe you've got the total appearance of a Christian. It's not the appearance, it's what's in your heart. And God is a discerner of the heart. And just today, just afresh, just say, Lord, I've got doubt. I don't know if you're in me. Come in me today. Seal me. And just receive through faith the newness of life, the regeneration. Just believe right now. Just believe in your heart. You are born again. A beautiful thing. Just as you respond to the Lord, He sees your hand. I don't always ask people to lift their hands. Just today, I I feel like the Lord would say, hey, respond to me. Lift your hand up. Say, Lord, thanks for being with me. Lord, now be in me. And just through faith, just believe. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you. 